the only folks we know who use the child lockout system for the dog. There were thousands of ants swarming around, climbing all over. Jeb said he'd look over every little bit, and there Bill would be hoisting up his tail. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And it's kind of an eclectic mix of stories we've got for you today. A little something of everything. We've got a story about a diamondback rattlesnake who participated in the Civil War. We've got another story about a girl who's looking for a way to find a story to tell to to her class. And we've got a little set of dog stories from the Chicago storyteller Dan Kedding. And we're going to wrap things up with a song from John McCutcheon about the outlaw pretty boy Floyd. It's going to be a great hour. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Trent Horton. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey, it's good to be here. And we're going to hear a Donna Ingham story. I'm excited about it. Let's hear about Diamond. Bill. Yeah, so like you said, it's called Diamond Bill because it's about a rattlesnake um, <laughs> named Bill, actually, as um, you might imagine. But um, it starts out with the guy, he's in the woods, and he all of a sudden notices he's being pursued by this this big old rattler. <laughs> and as as anybody might be, he's a little frightened. But as, he, as time goes on, he realizes the snake doesn't mean him any harm, and it actually kind of wants to just hang out with him. And uh, I don't know if you've had any pets, but for me, I I had a parakeet once who didn't like me all that much. So <laughs> having an animal that actually liked my company is kind of unfamiliar to me. But this snake certainly liked his, and it actually ends up going to a war with with the guy. So you you asked a moment ago if I had a pet, if mm-hmm. I had ever had any pets, and and I I, I have I also have had a parakeet. I'll just tell okay. you that right now. I had a parakeet when I was six years old. But when I was about eight years old, the parakeet was long gone and my dad brought home a snake. So I had a snake as a pet. Oh, so you relate so, to this story very that's well. That's right. Not a rattler and not named <laughs> Bill. But <laughs> Fair enough. But I am excited about this story from Donna Ingham. Donna Ingham has a shelf full of trophies as a tall tale teller. And uh, we love to hear from her. This is Diamond Bill from Donna Ingham here on The Appleseed. This is a story that was always told by a fella named Jeb Ryder from over in East Texas. The way Jeb told it, he was just walking down to the spring one day to get a bucket of water. He said he heard something behind him, but he didn't pay much attention, thinking it was just a rustle in the leaves. But then he heard a low rattle. Well, sure enough, he turned around and there, not six steps back on the trail, was the biggest diamondback rattlesnake he'd ever seen in his life. But now when Jeb stopped, the snake stopped, and he wasn't rattling his tail at all. As a matter of fact, Jeb said that snake only lifted up its head and looked at him as if it didn't mean him any harm. Still and all, it was a rattlesnake, and Jeb didn't have a stick or anything to use for a weapon. But he could look on down the trail there and see a big old dead dogwood tree. He thought if he could make it to that dead dogwood, he'd break him off a branch and then he'd have him a weapon. So he walked on down the trail, looking back every little bit, and sure as the world, that snake was coming right behind him. 
But he said it was keeping kind of a respectful distance. Sort of like a puppy that wants to follow you home, but still he's afraid to get too close. Jeb made it down to the dead dogwood and broke him off a branch and turned around to just lambast that snake. But even Jeb could see that the snake was still lying there as if it didn't mean him any harm. To tell you the truth, Jeb said, the snake was looking a good bit more cordial out of those snake eyes than some human eyes Jeb had looked into. So Jeb did something that was clear contrary to nature. Do not try this at home. He threw that stick away is what he did and walked on down to the spring and sat himself down on a cypress log. The snake came to and coiled himself up right there in front of Jeb and mostly looked grateful out of those snake eyes. Directly then, Jeb started talking to the snake. Now see here, snake, he said. I'm just going to call you Bill. Bill was my dog. Oh, he was the finest coon and possum dog a man ever had. And Bill understood me, he did. Lordy, I miss him. Yes, sir. I'm just going to call you Bill. And then Jeb swore. That snake nodded just raised his head up and shook it up and down as agreeably as you please. He did. Well, after that, Jeb said it got to be plumb comforting to go down to the spring to have a little quiet time and visit with Bill. He did it quite often. Then the war broke out. That would be the war between the states, what we sometimes call the War of Northern Aggression, and what most folks call the Civil War. Jeb enlisted, of course, in Captain Abercrombie's outfit, and the night before he was to move out, he went down to the spring to have a little quiet time and visit with Bill. He said it looked as if Bill understood all about the Yankees, and Jeb told Bill he'd be gone for a while, he didn't know how long, and Bill would just have to look after things there at the spring. The next morning, as Jib was riding out under an old leaning elm tree that hung over the trail between his house and the spring. He said he felt something drop around his shoulders. Said it would have scared him if it hadn't felt so natural. It was Bill. So you want to go to the war too, do you, Bill? Bill nodded. I don't know, Jeb said. We're going to be in camp with a bunch of Texans and... They've got about as much use for a rattlesnake as a mountain lion has for a lost puppy. Still in all, Jeb thought, if Bill wanted to go that bad, he might just take him and try to convert the heathens. So he told Bill, If I take you now, you're going to have to do what I tells you and stay puts where I put you. And you have to leave folks alone. If you'll do that, I just believe I'll take you. Bill nodded. And they rode on down the trail. Sure enough, when they got to camp, most of the fellas there did think Jeb was just a plain idiot. But they left Bill alone, and Bill left them alone. Jeb sure didn't have any trouble with anybody trying to steal his blankets, though. Jeb said it was a pure caution the way Bill got on with Jim Bowie. That's what Jeb had named his horse. He said he'd look out every little bit, and there would be Jim Bowie, rubbing his soft horse muzzle down along Bill's back. And for his part, Bill would go out ahead of Jim Bowie when Jim Bowie was grazing, 
and scare off anything that might get in his path. When he first got to camp, Jeb said, about all the soldiers did was practice marching. He said there'd be squads writing and squads, lefting and squads, fronting into line. He'd always put Bill over at the edge of the parade field, and he said he got to noticing how interested Bill seemed to be in all the men's movements. It was the band music that really got Bill going. And, of course, Dixie was his favorite tune. It was kind of comical, Jeb said. Bill got to where he could kind of rattle it. Yes, sir. Jeb said he'd look over every little bit, and there Bill would be heisting up his tail for the high notes. Jeb had made a kind of a sack to carry Bill in. It had drawstrings at the top so Jeb could loop them over the saddle horn when they were on the trail. The time came when they crossed the Mississippi River and joined up with General Albert Sidney Johnston's troops. And on that April morning when Shiloh broke out, they were in the battle. They were camped there at Owl Creek, due north of Shiloh Chapel, and Jeb's outfit was sent out on maneuvers one day. Before he left, Jeb took Bill over and put him under one of the commissary wagons and told Bill he'd be back. He didn't know when. Jeb asked the wagon master to keep an eye on Bill, and then Jeb was gone. He was gone all day. That evening then, as Jeb and his outfit were coming back, the colonel met them and said they were going to have to drive out a little bunch of Yankees that had gotten into the neck of the woods between where they were now and where camp was. So Jeb said they bellied down and got in behind the trees, expecting fire. But pretty soon, they began to find those Yankees, and they were all dead. Every last one of them. Well, Jeb said they just figured someone else had gotten there first and beat them to the fight. One of the fellows in Jeb's outfit noticed, though, that not a single one of those Yankees had a bullet hole in him anywhere. Furthermore, there weren't any creases on the trees to suggest there'd been some sort of firefight, and they thought that was pretty all-fired peculiar. So Jeb decided to investigate a little more closely. He went over to one of those Yankees and lifted up his pants leg. He could see right above the boot top, right there where that ankle vein goes down. Two little bitty holes, not any bigger than pinpricks. Then he looked at another Yankee, same thing, and then another and another and another. That's when he knew old Bill had been there. Jeb said they went through that neck of the woods counting dead Yankees. They counted 417 of them. Oh, he said there might have been a few more, might have been a few less. They might have counted some of them twice. When they got back to camp there on Owl Creek, Bill was under that commissary wagon. But he did look plumb tuckered out. And he was gaunt as a gutted snowbird. After that, though... The fellows in Jeb's outfit took a liking to Bill. They're the ones who started calling him Diamond Bill. And the colonel would ask Jeb to send Bill out on patrol. No telling how many Yankees Bill flushed out of thickets too dangerous for a man to go into. Well, Bill and Jeb made it all the way through the war, clear up to Appomattox. But Jim Bowie didn't. 
So they had to ride home on a borrowed mule. This would have been late in 65, I reckon. When they got back to the spring, Jeb put Bill down and said, I've got to go back to work. He started fixing fence and breaking out land and doing all the things that hadn't been done since he'd been gone. And lots of days, he didn't have time to even think about Bill. So it must have been maybe early in 66 that Jeb was going down to the spring one day, and all of a sudden he saw this great big diamond back a-running toward him, in a manner of speaking. Right away, Jeb was looking for a stick again. But he studied a minute and decided there was something mighty familiar about that snake. He asked, Bill, is that you? And Bill nodded the way he had a thousand times before. Then he made a new motion, Bill did, sort of raising his head up and jerking it backward until Jeb figured out Bill was saying, Follow me. So Jeb got in behind Bill, who moved on down the trail a little way and then cut through some tall grass until he sidled up right next to another big old diamond back. Mrs. Bill? Jeb asked, and Bill nodded. Then both snakes started making that new motion, jerking their heads back to get Jeb to follow. They moved out of that tall grass and through some low brush until they came to a clearing about the size of a courthouse square. Jeb said that Bill went out to the edge of that clearing, heisted up his tail, and gave the dangest rattle a man ever heard. It must have been some kind of signal, because all of a sudden, from all sides of that clearing came squads and platoons and companies and battalions and divisions of little rattlesnakes, all of them keeping perfect time and Perfect formation, squads rightin' and squads leftin' and squads frontin' in the line, just like old soldiers. Well, Bill got them all lined up in the middle of that parade field, gave another rattle for a signal. At that, they all started advancing right toward Jeb, still keeping perfect time and perfect formation and all rattles a-goin', and every last one of them was rattlin' Dixie! A pretty tall tale about rattlesnakes and Diamond Bill uh, from Donna Ingham. Uh, that's quite a tale, Trent. I got to tell you, it is. I really like how at the beginning she she warns uh, listeners to not try that at home, <laughs> right. which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I told you just just a little bit uh, as we began to talk together before we listened to the story about the snake that I had when I was a kid. My dad found that snake on a on a morning run. He was running along a mountain trail and he heard a rattle in the in the brush. Mm-hmm. And he looked down and there was a rattlesnake, or what he thought was a rattlesnake. But uh it wound up not being a rattlesnake at all. It wound up just moving its tail in the le- in the dead leaves in a okay. way that made it sound like a rattlesnake. So 
this uh, they just it, picked it up and brought it home. It not being a rattlesnake was its <laughs> ticket to live at our house for the night. <laughs> you got a lucky snake. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, we had a good time with our pet rattlesnake, and that's no or with our pet gopher snake, and that's no tall tale. Pleasure to have shared that story with you, Trent. Thanks for bringing it to us. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of the Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago you heard a story called Diamond Bill from the wonderful Texas tall tale teller Donna Ingham. And coming up, we've got a story from Bill Harley, a story called Sarah's Story about a girl who finds a way to tell a story to her school class. We've got a set of dog stories coming up, too, from Dan Kedding, from a collection of stories called The Gypsy Wagon and Other Neighborhood Tales, a couple of stories for anybody who loves dogs. And we've got a song from John McCutcheon about the outlaw Pretty Boy Floyd coming up in just a little bit, too. But first, because we know know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to tell to the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. Here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about traveling to a tiny little town in Nevada, a place I'd never been. It's a story about how my perspective changed through that visit about the place that I lived, the place I would go back home to. Here's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Years ago, I spent a couple of days on a work retreat with some friends and colleagues. We wanted to go somewhere out of the way, somewhere quiet where we could think together, where we could enjoy each other's company without the noise of town. I can't remember who it was that suggested Barclay, Nevada, but one of the guys I worked with had in-laws that owned vast stretches of cattle acreage there. So, to Barclay we went. Since the trip, I've told people about it, but I have yet to come across someone who's been there. To get to Barclay, you first have to get to Enterprise, Utah, west out of Cedar City or north of St. George. And from there, you navigate your way through the tangles of dirt roads that spread out from the Nevada border westward like rabbit tracks. And there, in a little valley, bisected by the railroad, you'll find Barclay. The whole time I was there, I counted only four buildings, three houses built by the Hafen brothers, and an old schoolhouse restored by the families that traced their roots back through that valley. Now, our host in Barclay was Eldon Hafen, who, in exchange for a Dutch oven dinner and a handful of songs on the guitar, showed us around the valley on four-wheelers. Now, if you or I had run the full circle of that valley without a guide like Eldon Hafen, we might have been able to sum up the unremarkable experience in about three sentences. But with our guide... The landscape exploded into stories, a carnival of petroglyphs, flood stories, wild mustangs, tales of land battles and adventures on the railroad. He stood us atop one high hill and told us with measured enthusiasm to watch the valley, 
which in a moment was filled up with railroad train, the front cars, then the middle cars, and then the rear cars, disappearing and reappearing as they weaved their way down the canyon and toward the ranch house and then around it and off to the west. He told us of days when his parents and grandparents could wave down trains and catch a ride into neighboring towns. He pointed to the abandoned skeleton of an old wooden house and told us of the man who had lived there, who never went to church, but who donated calves to the church welfare program. We heard story after story, more than you'd have thought the tiny valley could generate. And it occurred to us that when the Hafen brothers are gone, there's much of that world that will go with them. So I found myself listening carefully, chewing on the sentences, savoring the words, digesting the images of the valley. And I was filled up in tiny little Barkley, Nevada, in a way that I don't think I could have anticipated. And then we came home. And as I walked in the door of my own house, our four-year-old greeted me. He was playing in his bedroom, and I dropped my sleeping bag in the living room and went in there. Some might have taken that place for a mere mess, that bedroom of my son, but in just a few seconds of watching him enter the room and engage the toys that seemed scattered through it, I felt that I was walking into a coordinated carnival of action figures and building blocks, a world as full of stories as Barclay, Nevada, a world in which land disputes between Dr. Octopus and Chewbacca would be resolved only by cannon fire from the western barricades on the lip of the bed, a world in which a kindly Darth Vader benevolently tended a garden of colored Lego bricks, a world in which going to work in the morning meant crossing the wash where lived a ravenous but well-meaning Tyrannosaur. And I had learned something from Eldon Hafen over the preceding days, that I must hear about that world mapped out in the voice of my four-year-old who inhabits it, that when he has gone from the world or even just as far as distant adolescent, that childhood world will be gone too. Unless we remember the story and retell it, and pay attention as it's being told. In the end, I don't know that you owe it to yourself to make the dusty drive to Barkley, Nevada, but if you're looking for worlds to explore, your son's bedroom is just down the hall. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Have you ever traveled to a place that gave you insight into the place to which you would return, your home? Well, those stories can be worth sharing, and sharing stories about the things that happen to us, the things we think, the things we feel, the ways in which we're changed, can make for memories that last a lifetime. There's a lot coming up. We're going to hear from Bill Harley, from Dan Kedding, from John McCutcheon. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the books that we cherish, the films that we see, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, and talking about some of those ways in which stories get down into our lives is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by a friend, Richie Stedman, co-host of The Lisa Show. 
Richie, it's great to have you with me. Good to see you, friend. You know, I'll tell you, I, oh, I, I have this memory. I'm 10, maybe. Mm-hmm. My brother and I have been sent for three weeks to my grandparents' house in faraway California. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exotic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and we, we headed out there, and we were going to, you know, we, we were on this brother's vacation with grandma and grandpa. And after about four days, everybody was driving each other nuts, and <laughs> and I uh, I asked my grandmother to teach me to play something on the piano. She was a great pianist, and she sat down, and I think something – I think she was like a subscriber to some sort of sheet music monthly or something like that. Awesome. You know? So she sat me down and taught me the very, very beautiful theme song – to the television show Mash. Oh yeah, that's it was <laughs> such a gorgeous song. It really, it really is. is a beautiful song. Yeah, and and uh, you got a connection to Mash. Everybody's got a connection to Mash, but yeah. you do. Yeah, you know, two actually yeah. very poignant uh, connections with yeah. Mash. Um, one, fanatics of sports teams are are fascinating to me. Prom- uh-huh. I promise, I'm going somewhere with this <laughs> in the connection to Mash. But like, you wear. Uh, a Cubs hat somewhere, sure. and someone will come up to you and go, "Go Cubs, go!" Yeah. Or you know, they'll sing the you know the song when the Cubs win there in Wrigley, right? Yeah. They don't know you, right? They don't know anything about your background, but they feel uh, uh, yeah. an affinity, a connection to the fact that you're doing that. Or famously, I I once wore a, a Texas Longhorns uh, T-shirt, uh-huh. and I liked it. Because it was a soft T-shirt and I liked the color of it. The fact that there was a sports team on it meant nothing to me. And I remember wearing it for the first time out in public at an airport. And very famously, there is the kind of the hook 'em horns thing that people will do. And this this guy got right in my face and hook 'em horns. (laughs) Mash. And the like the corresponding Mash 4077 T-shirt that you can wear. Yep. It is that same thing. Yeah. You can you cannot know a single thing All about of the drab other person. T-shirt, stenciled letters. Yes. You know? Yeah. You cannot know a single other thing about that person, and you instantly are friends with that person <laughs> because you know that person <laughs> has an appreciation for brilliant comic writing. Right. Uh, the and and just such a, a heritage and history within the social fabric of our country yeah. that I just love it, and it really is like. So I can see that T-shirt on someone, and I'm like, that person is my friend, and I don't know their name, where they're from, <laughs> anything about them, and I just love it. So yeah. so that's just one. Let me tell you about the other one. Growing up in, in our household, the ability to be able to stay up late. Oh, yeah. You know, to stay up after right. hours. Yeah. That was the big deal. Right. And it's funny that you mentioned grandma and grandpa because yeah. – the grandma and grandpa were very strict about time to go to bed. Yeah. When we would stay overnight with them, man, it is 9 o'clock. Grandpa would take his old clock radio. He'd turn on the what we called elevator music. <laughs> to, uh, you know, He'd put it on the sleep setting that gave you 20 minutes to fall asleep, and yeah. sure enough, you would fall asleep. But, but if you had been helpful that day or you had you know done all the things that you were supposed to as you were there helping either with chores or just you know behaving yourself at grandma and grandpa's house – they would what they would let you stay up and you got to stay up not only through the news which was a big deal but you got the opportunity to sit out on the counter where they had the small TV you know right. those yes. countertop my grandfather had the same TV yeah. maybe like 12 inches That's if, right. if, yeah. if that yeah and 10:35 wow you get a small glass of milk <laughs> you get a couple of graham crackers and you, if you were, you know, living right, 
you got to watch that one episode of MASH and be able to just laugh <laughs> alongside Grandma alongside and Grandpa. Alongside Grandma and Grandpa. What, what, a, what a thing. I, and, of course, that, that, as you mentioned that, that sparks a, a, a memory for me. I'm remembering, of course, that MASH, when it was on in primetime, mm-hmm. right, was one of those just after bedtime Mm. shows and mm-hmm. and it, it is as you say if uh, on on certain lucky nights you might get able to st- you might be able to stay up for another half hour mm-hmm. and watch an episode of mash and and sit a, a, alongside the adults mm-hmm. and uh laugh along and and and, and not understand the jokes in, right. in a lot of those cases that's right but enjoy that communion with your folks or with yeah. your grandparents yeah. as you say and yeah. and i remember too um, the the distinct thing that it wasn't about the TV show because I can remember multiple times because they would constantly be replaying right yeah. and there were years where I'd loved being able to spend the time uh, with my grandparents to be able to sleep over but you'd you'd recognize real quick oh I've seen this one <laughs> and and it didn't matter right then it was the excitement and the anticipation of oh I know what's going to happen and I know this will make my grandpa laugh just as hard the second or seventh time as it did the first time and it was just about that time that like you say that sort of communion with one another yeah. and and just having that opportunity and now you know both grandparents have passed yeah. and as I think about the times that I was able to connect with them there were some you know brief moments on vacations and some other talks that we had but yeah. One of the things that comes most prominent to my mind is just sitting with my small, you know, plastic cup of milk because I couldn't be trusted with a glass <laughs> That's one. That's right. A couple of graham crackers and, and being able to stay up past 1030. Yeah. It, I, I also think about those times when when – when you're involved in an activity, right, mm-hmm. that's not – you're not just sitting – it's not like grandma and grandpa sat you down and said, let's talk together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're involved in an activity, this sort of third thing, mm-hmm. right, that opens the door in sort of safety and comfort for some of that sharing and some of that conversation. It's in, it's, it's, it's in, it's in the context of that activity that sometimes conversation can happen more naturally than if they sat you down and said, let's talk about something. Right, you know? right. And, you and just open up. That's right. That's right. Oh, mash. I'm <laughs> telling you, I'm there. I'm going to find an episode and I'm going to watch it tonight at 1035. Richie, it's great to have you with me. Thanks for joining me. Great stories can come into our lives in so many ways. It was fun to chat with Richie Stedman about an old television show, a television show of which I was fond as well, MASH. And uh, Richie, of course, is the co-host of The Lisa Show, which you can catch at byuradio.org. Org, uh, along with a lot of fine programs, the Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Bill Harley about a girl trying to find a way to tell a story to her class, and you won't want to miss that story. Sarah's story, it's called, and it's coming up on the Appleseed. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Richie Stedman about 
MASH, the television show that so many of us watched every week and then in syndication every night. You know, great stories get into our lives in so many ways. Pleasure to chat with Richie. Up next, a story from Bill Harley. This is a story about a girl named Sarah, and she finds herself in a little bit of a predicament. She's tasked in her school class with bringing a story to tell. Problem? She doesn't know any stories. She racks her brain, can't think of anything, talks to her mom, still can't think of anything. Finally, on her way to school the next day with nothing to share, nothing to tell, something happens. What is it? Well, here's Bill to tell you about it. Bill Harley with Sarah's Story on the Appleseed. Sarah was getting ready to go home from school. Her teacher said, Everybody get your things, but before you go, I have to tell you that tomorrow morning I'm going to have everybody here in class tell me a story. So I want you to think of a story you can tell. Right away, some kid in her class said, Oh, 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 I know this really, really scary story. Can I tell it, huh? And her teacher said, Yes, we'll look forward to hearing that tomorrow. And another kid said, Oh, I know this really funny story. It's really, really, really funny. Can I tell it, huh? And her teacher said, You can tell that tomorrow, too. But Sarah, she didn't say either of those things. She said, I can't think of any stories. I don't know any stories at all. Her teacher said, Oh, Sarah, everybody knows a story. No, I can't think of any. I don't know any. Oh, Sarah, everybody knows a story. Go home. I'm sure you can think of one or or ask your mother for help. I don't know any. And Sarah walked home because she walked to and from school. And as she walked home, she tried to think of a story and she couldn't. She knew she couldn't, and she didn't. She got home. In a little while, her mom drove up the driveway. She ran out to meet her. She said, Oh, Mom, I need a story first thing in the morning. You got one, huh? Because I can't think of one. Everybody's got one. I don't have one, huh? Her mother was tired. Oh, Sarah, why don't you, um, listen, why don't you just tell three little pigs? Oh, come on, Mom. Everybody knows that story. Can't you do better than that, huh? (sighs) All right, yeah, um. You know what story you used to like? Why don't you tell Goldilocks? Oh, Mom, come on. Get with the program. Everybody knows that story. Sarah's mother got angry. Well, if you don't want my help, I guess you'll just have to think of a story by yourself. Oh, no. Thanks a lot, Mom. Thanks for all your help. And Sarah tried to think of a story, but she couldn't. She knew she couldn't, and she didn't. It was time to go to bed, and she hadn't thought of a story. She said, Oh, maybe I'll remember my dreams. She woke up the next morning. Oh, I can't remember my dreams. I can't make that into a story either. She had breakfast. She tried to think of a story. She couldn't. It was time to walk to school. She still did not have a story. Oh, no. i got to make one up as I'm going to school. What am I going to do? She walked to school, and as she walked to school by herself, she tried to think of a story, and she couldn't. She was walking down the sidewalk, and she came up to a corner, and there was a street light, and it was red, so she had to wait for the light to change and she was standing on the corner and she was trying to make up a story and nothing was happening when all of a sudden she heard somebody say hey hey sarah hey she looked around she didn't see anybody hey sarah down here sarah looked around she didn't see anybody until she looked down on the sidewalk and when she looked down on the sidewalk she noticed standing on its hind legs an ant hey sarah hey come on down here Are you talking to me? 
You see anybody else named Sarah? Come on, let's go. And the ant turned and started to walk down the sidewalk. Wait a minute. Where are you going? Come on. There was nobody there, so Sarah turned and she followed the ant down the sidewalk. She got about halfway down the block and there was a crack there in the sidewalk where the ants had built their hill. You know how they do that, right there in the cracks. And the ant started to go down the hole and stopped and said, Come on, let's go. Sarah said, Wait a minute. I, I can't go down there. I, I'm a big girl. You're a little ant. The ant said, Come on, went down the hole. Sarah said, oh, No, what am I going to do? There was nobody there. She looked. It was just an anthill. It was not very big, but she noticed it was a little bigger than they usually are, and she thought maybe she could get just part of her toe in to show that she tried. So that's what she did. She took her shoes and socks off. She put her socks inside her shoes, and she took her toe, her big toe, and she put it in the very corner of that hole, and she was right. She could get just a little part of that toe in. So she twisted and twisted. She was very, very patient, and she got her whole toe inside the hole. Then she knelt down and started her next toe, and the toe after that. And the next toe, she got all her toes inside that hole on that foot, and she twisted and twisted. She got her whole foot inside the hole. She jammed her big toe from the next foot inside the hole, too. She got that in, and the next toe, the next toe, all those toes. She twisted. She got both feet inside the hole, and then she really went to work. She wiggled and wiggled and wiggled. She got down until she was up to her waist in the anthill. Then she stuck her fingers down, and she pulled up. She was inside the anthill. There were thousands of ants swarming around, climbing all over, going... And she didn't know what they are saying, but then she wasn't an ant. And the ant that had led her down the hole said, Come on, Sarah, let's go! And started to go down this long passageway deep into the earth. Sarah said, Wait, come on! She didn't know what to do. She started to follow the ant down deep into the earth. All these other ants going by her going... And she didn't know what they were saying, but then she wasn't an ant. Down deep into the earth until she came into this little room. And there on the other side of the room was the queen ant. She knew it was the queen ant because she had a crown on her head said queen on it. The queen said, oh, Sarah, I'm so glad you've come. I need your help. Do you have any honey bread? You know, some bread with honey on it? Sarah said, no, I got my bag here, a a peanut butter sandwich. No, that won't do. I have to have some bread with honey on it. Honey bread, you see, I want to lay eggs and have babies, and I have to have honey bread. Could you get me some? Oh, I'm really sorry, but but I'm late for school. Oh, Sarah, you've got to help me, please. All right, all right. Don't cry. I hate it when people cry. I'll see what I can do. The queen said, good, hurry up. Sarah turned around. She ran up the long passageway, past all these ants, going... And she didn't know what they were saying, but she wasn't an ant. She got up to that little hole. She said, how did I get in here? But she stuck her finger up. She got her finger out, and then her hand, and then her next hand, and both arms out. She pulled herself out of the hole. She was back on the sidewalk again. There were her shoes and socks. Oh, no. Where am I going to get some honey? There's no stores around here. What am I going to do? Just then, this bee circled over her head, landed on her nose. The bee said, Hi, Sarah. Hi. Bee flew off Sarah's nose, landed in front of her, looked back, and said, 
Climb on. What? Climb on. I can't climb on you. I'm a big girl. You're a little bee. Climb on. Sarah said, this is just ridiculous. But she put one leg on one side of that bee, one leg on the other. The bee took off. Sarah was holding on. Flew across the street. Took a right turn on the sidewalk. Sarah was bombing down the sidewalk. Flew right by the school. Right by the principal's office. Sarah said hi, but the principal didn't see her. Flew across a field. Sarah saw they were headed to a big, huge beehive up in a tree. Oh, no! Whop! Flew right inside the beehive. There were thousands of bees swarming around. They were all going... And she didn't know what they were saying, but then she wasn't a bee. She climbed off the bee. The bee crawled over to the honeycomb. It was sealed over with wax. The bee reached out with its mouth and started to pull and pull on the wax until it came apart from the comb, and then the honey started to drip down. Sarah saw the honey. It was what she needed. But she didn't have anything to hold it. The only thing she had to hold it were her hands. She held out her hands. That was all she had. And the honey started to drip into her hands until she had a big, huge mound of it pouring over the sides of her hands through her fingers. She said, "'That's enough!' The bee sealed over the wax, walked over to Sarah. Climb on. What? Climb on. Oh, no, I... Climb on. This is ridiculous. She put one leg on one side of the bee, one leg on the other. The bee flew out the hive across the field. Sarah holding on with her knees, flew across the field right by the school, right by the principal's office. Hi! The principal didn't see her down the sidewalk, across the street. Put Sarah right down by the anthill. And then that bee just flew off. There was Sarah. There were her shoes and socks. There was all the honey in her hands. There was the anthill. Oh, no, not again. She stuck her big toe in. She got it in. She got the next toe in. The next toe, she was getting very good at it by this time. The next foot, she twisted down inside the anthill. She was back inside the anthill. There were thousands of ants swarming around. They were all going... And she didn't know what they're saying, but then... She wasn't an ant. She ran down the long passageway. She came into the queen's room. <laughs> Look, I got the, I got the honey. Oh, good. Where's the bread? Oh no, I, I don't have. Any. I have to have some bread. Sarah said, "Wait a minute. I'm already late for school. I got an idea. I got this peanut butter sandwich here. Why don't we just take the honey and put it on the peanut butter sandwich, and that'll do?" Oh no, I don't think so. Why not? I don't like peanut butter. Sarah said, "How do you know?" I just don't like how it looks. Have you ever tried it? No. Sarah said, you got to try one bite. The queen said, no. Sarah said, one bite is the rule. And she took out that peanut butter sandwich. She glommed the honey on it. She rolled it into this big sticky ball. She held it out to the queen. The queen said, one bite, said Sarah. The queen reached out with her feelers, took a little hunk of that sandwich. Mm. What? What? Why, this is fantastic. This, this is just what I want. Sarah, I'm going to have a thousand babies, and I'm going to name them all after you. Let me see. I'm, I'm going to call them Sarah 1, Sarah 2, Sarah 3, Sarah 4. Sarah said, wait a minute. What are you doing? 
I'm just counting up to a thousand. Sarah, five. Sarah said, I gotta go. It'll just take a minute. Sarah, six. Sarah said, I'm late. The queen said, bye. Sarah, seven. Sarah turned around. She ran up the long passageway. The ants were going, and she didn't know what they're saying, but then she wasn't an ant. She got her finger outside the hole, her hand, both hands, pulled herself out. There were her shoes and socks. She put her socks on. She put her shoes on. She ran to the end of a street. It was a green light. She ran across the street, down the sidewalk, right into the school, right by the principal's office. Hi! He didn't see her. Down the hallway, came into her classroom, sat down in her seat. Her teacher looked up. Sarah, you're late. I know. I just got... Well, I got stuck up. I'm sorry. Well, that's all right, but everybody here's told their story. Could you tell yours now? Oh, no. I don't have a story. Why not? Oh, well, I I couldn't think of one, and I told you I couldn't, and I didn't, and I was trying to think of one walking home, and I didn't. I asked my mom for help, and she wanted me to tell three little pigs, and I told her that was dumb, and then she got mad and wouldn't help me, and I couldn't remember my dreams, and I was trying to make one up, and I was walking to school, and I was trying to make up a story, and nothing was happening, and I got up to the corner, and it was a red light, and I couldn't cross on the red light because I'm not supposed to, and I was standing there, and I was trying to make up a story, see, and... And this ant came along, and it wanted my help, so I followed it down the sidewalk, and I got my toe inside the ant hole, and my foot inside, all the way down the ant's room. I don't know where Sam, not an ant, ran down this long passageway. There was a queen's room. Knew it was a queen because she had a crown on her head, said she was a queen. She wanted some honey bread. I didn't have any. I tried to give my peanut butter sandwich. That went enough. She started to cry. I said, I see what I could do. I ran up the long passageway, answering, I thought Sam, not an ant, got outside. Where's I get some honey? This bee came along, picked me up, flew across the street, down the sidewalk, said hi to the principal, right by the school. He didn't see me. Flew across this field, got inside this beehive, got all this honey on my hands. I didn't have anything to hold in my hands. Flew back across the field, right by the principal. He didn't see me. Across the sidewalk, got down inside the ant hole again. The ants were going, I'm there, Sam, not an ant. Ran down a long passway, gave her the honey. She said, where's the bread? I said, I don't have any. He said, you got to get some. I said, I'd have a peanut butter sandwich. She said, didn't like it. How to know you didn't like the taste of it. I said, one bite, you got to try it. It's the rule. She said, she tried it. She liked it. She's going to have a thousand babies. And he moved off to me, Sarah. One, Sarah, two. I said, I got to go. Sarah, three, Sarah, four. I got to go. Sarah, five. Bye. I ran up the long passway. Ants are going, I thought Sam, nine out, got outside, put my shoes and socks. I ran across the street in a green light, not a red light. Down the sidewalk, said hi to the principal. He didn't see me, ran down here. Oh, and that's why I don't have a story. And the kids in her class said, No. And Sarah said, That's true. It's not a story. And Sarah's teacher smiled and she said, Sarah, that's the best story we've heard all day long. Bill Harley with Sarah's story about how Sarah found a story to tell in a rather fantastic way. Up next, Dan Kedding, who's been a performer and educator for more than 30 years. He's from Chicago, and he loved dogs growing up, like a lot of folks. And as soon as he was old enough to get a dog of his own, he did. And then he got another one, and then another one. And each one had its own personality and talents, each one smart and loving in its own way. One of them loved children and always took great care of them. Another was a prankster. Still another was smart enough to know who needed his help the most. Here's Dan Kedding with the stories of some of those dogs. Let's call it Dog Stories. Dan Kedding on the Appleseed. I love dogs. And ever since my senior year in college, I've had a dog. Sometimes two. Right now, my wife Tandy and I have two Australian Shepherds. Both dogs that we rescued. Jack and Maeve. These are sheep herding dogs. Smart, active, and blessed with a wicked sense of humor. Maeve is our newest dog, just over a year old. 
a red Merle with eyes that could stare a hole through a steel door. She has already wormed her way into our hearts. Her favorite trick is to walk out on the screen porch, stand next to the door. Slowly she rises to her hind feet, and with one paw on the door, she opens the latch with the other one. In a flash, she's happily running around the yard. Jack, on the other hand, loves to go for rides. He sits in the back seat and watches the world go by. One winter's day, right after we got him, we were driving down the highway. Tandy was behind the wheel. Suddenly we heard the sound of a window going down, and when I looked in the back seat, there was Jack cheerfully sticking his head out the window with a grin on his face as a cold air beat his ears back. Tandy raised the window from her side as I pulled him back in. A few minutes later it happened again, and again, and again. I thought that maybe the car developed a short and was lowering the side window by itself. At least that's what I thought till I saw Jack out of the corner of my eye. He looked in my direction, then Tandy's, and then put his paw on the armrest till it hit the window button. We're the only folks we know who use the child lockout system for the dog. Before Jack, there was Dido. She was the strongest dog I had ever met. Almost a hundred pounds of black lab. She loved to put her head on your lap and especially knew the times you really needed that kind of affection. Of course, like all labs, she drooled quite a bit and always left a wet spot right where her chin had been. She loved children. When our friends Janice and Paul came to visit with their newborn daughter Miranda, Dido never left Miranda's side. Every time the baby shifted in her makeshift bed that we had made out of a dresser drawer, Dido ran to get one of us. And if the baby cried, she ran to the nearest adult and growled till someone came to see what the baby needed. Our niece Georgia loves dogs, and when she was a baby she was visiting. She fell asleep with her head on Dido's massive chest. Dido looked up and saw the baby and quietly laid back down. A few minutes later I looked down, and there was little Georgia's finger halfway up the dog's nose, and poor Dido staring straight ahead, her eyes almost crossed, but unwilling to move for fear of waking the baby. I pulled the finger from Dido's nose and wiped the finger clean, which Georgia promptly put in her mouth, and Dido sighed. A year later, Georgia was visiting again, and when she plopped down to sleep next to Dido, the big dog raised her head. Slowly she laid her head back down and covered her face with her huge paw. We all laughed for hours. Before Dido, there was Traveler. He was a border collie and was as serious a dog as you'll ever meet. Where Jack and Maeve are pranksters, Trav wouldn't know what you were talking about. Life was serious, especially in the absence of sheep. Trav would come with me when I'd visit schools, especially rural schools, where the dogs were almost part of the student body. He had an uncanny way of knowing which student needed him. He'd walk into the first class and adopt a kid for the day. He went everywhere with them, recess, lunch, even the bathroom. He always picked the kid who needed him, the painfully shy kid who nobody talked to but who was now the center of attention, the new kid who needed to break the ice with their new classmates, the bully who everyone was afraid of till the dog came to school. It's hard to be afraid of someone when an intent border collie is following them everywhere. One day I was visiting a small rural elementary school in northern Wisconsin. Traveler came into the first class, a third grade, and immediately sat next to a little boy in the back row. The boy didn't look down at the dog at all. He just stared ahead, a sad expression on his face. 
Trav was not to be denied, so he softly placed his head on the boy's lap for a little pet. The boy never looked down. As I told the class's story at the front of the room, I watched at this contest as it unfolded. Trav bounced his head on the boy's lap, once, twice, a dozen times, till finally a smile crossed the child's face, and he reached down and began to pet Trav, who closed his eyes in happiness. At the end of the day, the third grade teacher came up to me and said, Do you know what your dog did today? I assured her that if she showed me where it was, I would clean it up. But that wasn't the problem. No, this was about the little boy he spent the day with. That boy had lost his twin brother to an accident on their farm four months before, and this was the first day he had smiled. When Tandy and I married, I promised not to stay on the road for more than two weeks at a time, and to this day, except for the occasional tour overseas, I've kept that promise. Trav had always gone with me to gigs. He had traveled all over the United States and Canada, one of the best-known dogs in the circuit. I was leaving for my first road trip after we married. The car was loaded, and Tandy was standing on the front porch, Trav sitting beside her. I kissed my wife goodbye, and then opened the back of the station wagon and called for Traveler to hop in. He walked over to the car, and he looked in. Then he looked up at me, and then over his shoulder at Tandy. He turned and walked back to her, and sat down next to her. He never went with me again, unless she came along. The person who coined the phrase, dumb animals, never had a dog. Dan Ketting with Dog Stories here on the Apple Seed. Such a pleasure to hear from Dan. We're going to wrap up with an outlaw tale, a song from the great storyteller and songwriter John McCutcheon. And uh, this is a song about an outlaw named Pretty Boy Floyd, one of Oklahoma's most wanted, turned to legend after his death. And the story is that he was kind of a Robin Hood figure, helping families keep their homes through hard times, though he was on the wrong side of the law. Here's John McCutcheon with Pretty Boy Floyd on the Appleseed. Come and gather round me, children, and a story I will tell Of pretty boy Floyd, the outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well T'was in the town of Shawnee on a Saturday afternoon His wife beside him in the wagon, as into town they rode There a deputy sheriff approached him in a manner rather rude Using vulgar words of anger, which Miss Floyd overheard Pretty boy grabbed a log chain, the deputy grabbed his gun. In the fight that followed, he laid that deputy down. Oh, he took to the trees and the timber to live a life of shame. Every crime in Oklahoma was added to his name. Yes, he took to the trees and the timber on that Canadian river shore. And pretty boy found a welcome at many a farmer's door. So many a starving family, the same old stories told. How the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little home. Others tell about a stranger who'd come to beg a meal. 
underneath the napkin left a thousand dollar bill. Was in Oklahoma City upon one Christmas day. Come a whole carload of groceries with a note to say. Oh, you say that I'm an outlaw. You say that I'm a thief. Here's a Christmas dinner for the families on relief. Boys, through this world you ramble. You meet lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun, and some with a fountain pen. And as through this world you ramble, as through this world you roam, you'll never find an outlaw and drive a family from their home. Pretty boy Floyd, a song. Performed for you by John McCutcheon, a little outlaw tune to wrap us up today. And, uh, you know, if you go to byuradio.org slash Appleseed, you'll find an archive of all of the episodes of the show. Every episode we've produced, more than 2,000 of them. But you'll also find other things, too. You'll find many episodes of the show, just a single story long, just a few minutes, in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. Appleseed Extras, we call them. And if you go there today, you'll find a story from Beth Horner called My Dog. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.